Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, so if the words don't come out right, I'm just going to warn you now, okay? And I'm a little bit slap happy, so if I start doing really silly things, it's due to lack of sleep and too much coffee. So, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, get into your word. We thank you for the power of it. God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you cause us to respond? Lord, there's nothing that we desire more in our lives than to be in fellowship with you, to experience the, the weight and the, the glory and the splendor of, of who you are. God, there's nothing more that we desire than a church than to experience your glory, to glorify you. And Lord, we would never want uh, to hinder the work of your spirit or to do something that would cause your glory, your presence to, to leave our midst. So Lord, you're welcome here. God, we invite you here as we have, we've sung to you. We ask that you would really give us a deeper understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Where's the glory? Where's the glory? Have you ever asked that question? Where's the glory? Maybe when you look at our country, you go, where is the glory? Where's the splendor? Where's the substance? Where's the weight? Where's the goodness? Maybe when you look at our marriages as a whole, as the, the people of God, you go, where's the glory? Where's the splendor inside of that marriage relationship? Maybe you look at your own family at times and go, where's the glory? Maybe you look at your own life sometimes and we go, where is the glory? The word glory, as we'll see in 1 Samuel 4, it means weight, splendor, substance. It's God's presence. There was times prior in the Old Testament that God visited his people with his presence and it's represented in his glory. And this is the moment in Israel's history for a period of time where God's glory is going to depart from the children of Israel for the purpose of getting their attention back. Wouldn't it be tragic if for some reason, as the people of God, we did something to grieve God's spirit in such a way where he didn't leave us or forsake us, but his glory was not with us. The weight of his presence wasn't with us. The substance, the splendor of his presence wasn't with us. I think that that's the most tragic thing that could happen to a church, where the church has moved away from the Lord but continued in existence, and you walk into the doors of the church and God's presence isn't there. God's not welcome in, in that place. This is a challenging chapter. It's really when God's judgment falls upon Eli, his sons, upon the nation of Israel. We'll see as we continue to study through this book that there is hope, but for this chapter, it, it's intense. So let's look in verse one of chapter four. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God's been speaking to Samuel. Samuel's this young boy that's growing up in the tabernacle. God spoke to him at a young age. Samuel's growing in maturity. And God's continuing to speak to him. He becomes the prophet, the mouthpiece for this generation. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines in a camp besides Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. 
The Philistines were enemies to the children of Israel. Their origin, we know from the book of Amos, is from the island of Crete. They were actually immigrants to this area of Canaan, but they were the first of the people groups to discover how to use iron in this region. They were the only ones that had access to iron. Because of that, they had swords, they had spears, they had shields, they had helmets, and the children of Israel, they had all their farming tools. They're at quite a disadvantage to the Philistines. And as you read the Old Testament, they're a real enemy for the people of God. And Israel goes out to battle against the Philistines. And notice there's no direction from God to go into this battle. It's going to be a horrible defeat for the children of Israel. When we go into battles that God's not present in and he's not called us to, it's certain defeat. Just because there's an enemy, just because there's a problem, just because something's happening, doesn't mean that I need to rush in to fight it. There's times that God's calling us into a fight. There's times where the Lord's saying, this this is your battle. You can't run away from it. You need to step into it. But there's other times where God's not calling us into that particular battle. They're rushing into a battle and they're not right with God. They're not in relationship with God. They're not in obedience to the Lord but they're tired of the Philistines. They're tired of the oppression of the Philistines. They, they want deliverance, but because God's not present, it's gonna result in a great defeat. Sometimes I think we're more concerned with winning the battle than we are with walking with God. Amen. We're saying, I wanna win this battle. I'm tired of the Philistines. I'm tired of my present situation. I, I want deliverance, so I'm gonna step out in this area. And God's saying, I wanna bring deliverance as well, but I'm more concerned about your heart. I want you to walk with me. I want you to be in relationship with me. I don't know about you, but I've definitely walked into battles that God was not in, that he was not calling me to. In verse two, then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. 4,000 men die as they go into to battle. It seems like this is a good point to accept defeat. This is a good point to realize that God's not in it. That there's enough material here to return to God. There's enough consequence here to say, I'm missing something. But how many times in our own lives is God trying to get our attention, but we're not ready to go there yet? There's got to be even a greater loss. There's got to be even a a greater level of desperation. There's got to be more trauma that comes in our lives before it gets our attention. In verse 3, when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, this is a good question, and notice how they phrase it. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. They understood that it was more than just an issue of the Philistines. They didn't come back and go, you know, the reason that we lost is they've got spears, they've got swords, they've got shields, and we've got our farming tools. Of course we would lose. That'd be an easy thing to do, wouldn't it? To kind of put it together in that way. They understood the real battle was with the Lord. They understood the person that was really opposed to them and the way that they were living was the Lord. Now, the only problem with this is they're not asking from a place of conviction or repentance, and they don't sit in it very long. It's almost just like an afterthought. Like, why why did God allow us to be defeated? Oh, let's go to the solution. 
I've got an answer for that. And a question like this, we need to just sit in for a while. We just got to let it sink in. Why is there this defeat in my life? Why is there this death in my life? Why is there this consequence in my life? And sometimes as we meditate, we'll come to understand that it's just a trial of life. It's not because of sin. And God's just allowed a trial in our lives. But then other times when we stop and ask this question, we begin to go, oh yeah, I'm not where I'm supposed to be with the Lord. God is trying to get my my attention. This would be a great time for repentance. 1 Samuel 4 would be a wonderful time for repentance. In a few more verses, we're going to read that 30,000 men die. 30,000 men. I grew up in a town of 16,000 in Southern Oregon. That's my hometown times two, wiped out. 30,000 men are going to die and wasn't necessary if they would have really paused and stopped in this question. And maybe this is for you tonight. Maybe you're in that place where you've been asking some hard questions, but it's really easy to move on with your own answer. Don't move on with your own answer. Let God give you an answer. Let him speak to you. Let him work what he's wanting to show you because look at the answer that they come up with on their own. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. And when it comes among us, it might save us from the hand of the enemies. Notice again how the scriptures read that it may save us from the hands of the enemies. They're putting their trust in the Ark of the Covenant, but they're not putting their trust in God. To understand this, we have to first answer the question, what is the Ark of the Covenant? It was a a fairly small box, but a very important box that represented the throne room of God, the presence of God that was placed in the Holy of Holies inside of the tabernacle and eventually inside of the temple. No one got to be around the Ark of the Covenant. No one got to see the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest one day, once a year, the Day of Atonement could go into the Ark of the Covenant. So for the Ark of the Covenant to be taken out of this place and to be brought out into battle was very significant. But it wasn't the first time that it was done. When the children of Israel came into the Promised Land, remember, leading in the battle, coming into the Promised Land, it was the Ark of the Covenant. The priests carried the Ark of the Covenant and they were instructed to do so. They stepped into the Jordan and God stopped the waters of the Jordan. Ark of the Covenant going around the walls of Jericho. So they're going back to these experiences when God did instruct this to bring out the Ark of the Covenant. And they're thinking, that's exactly what we should do now. But God hadn't given that instruction. They're relying on their own solution. And notice at this point how spiritual they get. Oh, it's time to time to get out the Bible. Yeah, it's time to go to church. It's time to start listening to Christian radio. It's time to start tithing. I'm even going to fast. It's time to start fasting. But it really wasn't a real repentance or a real walk with the Lord. They were simply longing for the deliverance. The Ark of the Covenant was simply tradition, formula, ritual, instead of being in relationship with God. God doesn't want us looking to a box He wants us looking to him. And a lot of times we begin to idolize a box. 
And we go, this is what we've always done. This is what we always should do. And we're looking to a ritual. We're looking to a formula instead of looking to the Lord. You can even be looking to the ritual of going to, the, to church or looking to the ritual of reading the word or looking to the ritual of singing worship. Are all those things good things? Yes, when they're done out of relationship. But when they're done out of ritual, it leads to death. But, but th- this is what I need to do. This is what I'm gonna do to, to get out of a jam. They're not concerned with obedience or relationship with God. They only want power and deliverance. And that's us so many times. We get ourselves in a real jam because of our own sin, our own foolishness. We're not listening. We've been living this way for a long time. Here comes the Philistines. Here comes death. 4,000 have died. And we cry out to the Lord and we say, get out the Ark of the Covenant. Get out the box. Get out the ritual. But I don't want anything to do with relationship with God. And I'm really not concerned with obedience. But I want the power. And I want the deliverance. And that's not the way it works. Gang, that is not the way it works. God's not about ready to be a lucky charm. He's not about ready to be a genie that you just rub his stomach in the sky and you get your deliverance. He's interested in relationship and he's also interested in obedience. And when we get to that place of repentance, we're saying, you know what, God? I'm okay with the consequences. I really have blown this. This is on me. I have to accept this and I have to to own this. But I want you. God, I want fellowship with you. God, I want to be close to you. I want to be at church because I want to draw near to you. I want to be in the word because I want to know know your love. Do you see the difference? It's a huge difference in our hearts and attitudes and mentality. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher of the past, he said this on this section of scripture. He said, instead of attempting to get right with God, these Israelites set about devising superstitious means of securing the victory over their foes. In this respect, most of us have imitated them. We think of a thousand inventions, but we neglect one thing needful. They forget the main matter, which is to enthrone God in the life and seek to do his will by faith in Christ Jesus. I've got to confess to you, there's times when I rely upon a habit, a tradition, a formula. Granted, it's a good habit, but I'm not looking to the Lord. I'm looking to a box. I'm looking to a formula. I think in our Western culture, we're very susceptible to this. Give it to me in a system. Give it to me in a box. Send it to me on Amazon Prime. If it'll come in a book published by so-and-so with so many steps, then I'm all in. If you can sum up parenting and a book, if you can sum up marriage, if you can sum up finances, give me a formula. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things if they're used as a tool submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we're looking to that box to save us instead of going to the throne room of God and saying, I'm concerned with being surrendered to the throne room of God, we've got it completely backwards. We gotta look to the Lord, amen? And this is where they failed. They failed to look to the Lord. They failed to surrender their lives to the Lord. In verse four, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. 
And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of Covenant. Okay, bring the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark's gonna be the solution. This wood box is gonna be the solution. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are gonna carry the Ark. They're gonna bring the Ark out. Remember Hophni and Phinehas? living in complete rebellion to God, stealing from the offering of the Lord, having sexual relationship with women who are coming to worship at the tabernacle in in the courtyard, they have no idea of the judgment of God that's gonna fall on them this day. Thinking, yeah, this is a great idea. This is gonna work out. We're gonna have a great victory here. In verse five, and when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. That's quite a statement. This was a, a very emotional, passionate experience for the children of Israel. They didn't see the Ark of the Covenant. Now they're getting to see it. It's out in their midst and they have all this confidence that they're gonna have victory over the Philistines and they begin to scream and they begin to shout so loudly that the earth shakes. Excitement doesn't necessarily mean truth. Agreed? Sometimes it does. We see people in scripture getting very excited about the truth of who God is. There's nothing wrong about getting excited about truth. But just because people are excited doesn't mean that they're in the truth. I think from an outward perspective, there would have been a lot of people driving by going, that's an incredible worship service. That's a real move of God. They're excited. They're pumped up and they're worshiping. And God's going, no, it's not based in truth. It's not based in obedience at all. There's an old adage that says, God doesn't care about how high we jump, but how straight we walk. Isn't that true? It's not necessarily about the emotional experience of how excited we get and how much we can jump up and down. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong about getting excited about who God is. We see that expression in scripture, but the greatest form of worship is obedience. And the excitement doesn't mean anything if it's not based in obedience. Come on, let's be honest. Your spouse may be really excited about you and bring you a bunch of nice gifts, but if they're not being faithful, what good is that excitement? What good is that expression? So the expression is right if it's based in obedience, if, it, if it's a based in a life that is committed to, to the Lord. Excitement doesn't always equal truth. In verse six, now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So they're going, what in the world happened to the Israelites? Why are they getting so excited? The earth, earth's shaken, and word gets back that the ark of the covenant is in their camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. You have to commend the Philistines' understanding of who God is. They understood what God had done to the Egyptians. They're also displaying more respect and fear for God than the Israelites. Isn't that a shame to the people of God? 
Here's, here's the Philistines. They're total pagans, total idolaters. They worship all of these gods, but there's some fear and trembling when the Ark of the Covenant comes out. But to the children of Israel, they're treating the Ark of the Covenant simply as a good, good luck charm. They lost the, the fear of God. This is going to hurt a little bit. I'm just, I'm going to go there, okay? Sometimes you, you talk with somebody who is completely lost, who has no understanding of the gospel, no understanding of who, who Jesus Christ is, but there's a certain level of reverence when it comes to the gathering of the people of God. You know, they, they come into a setting like this and they just know, you know, I, I'm not gonna cuss. I, I shouldn't say this in church. You know, we do a lot of memorial services and funerals here at, at RMC and it brings in a lot of lost people, which is, which is great. And you see people catching themselves. They're not used to being in church and they're standing up here and they're about ready to let it fly and then all of a sudden they go, oh, I can't let it fly. I'm in church, right? And it's a little bit misunderstood and we, we understand that because God is everywhere, not just in this place, but they're displaying a respect for the Lord just like these Philistines. And then sometimes we get so comfortable and we get so casual with the presence of God, we've lost respect altogether. We come in and we worship the Lord and we go out and we live in full-on rebellion to God and we don't even think twice about it. But at least the person that totally doesn't know the Lord has enough respect to stop themselves in this moment. And that's a little bit convicting, isn't it? And that's what we find with the Philistines here. It totally backfires on the children of Israel bringing out the Ark of the Covenant. Verse nine, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. They have more ardor, more determination, more zeal, more courage. Come on, guys, you better fight. They've brought out their ace. They've brought out their, their Ark of the Covenant. And unless you want to be a slave to the Hebrews, you better bring it with everything that you have. So the Ark actually stirred them up to fight harder than they would have prior. In verse 10, so the Philistines fought and, is, and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. The wages of sin is death. 30,000 killed. That's a great blow to, to the children of Israel. The sin of not walking with the Lord and not being obedient to the Lord ultimately resulted in death. Checking boxes with no relationship brings death. Ritual tradition, formula. I'm looking to the box. Instead of looking to the Lord, it brings about death. Something I've been thinking about this week is I'm very thankful for this box that God has given to us that we call a church, church facility. But you know what? This box may not be in God's plan forever for RMC. You're going, what are we planning on selling? Can we not meet our bills and all those kind of things? No, that's not the place that, that we're at. But if Jesus doesn't come back in 30 or 40 years, is this building gonna be what he wants for his body 30 or 40 years from now? 
And how would we feel if this place where we've done weddings and baby dedications and funerals and met with the Lord and heard the word and seen people get saved, if it got leveled, became something else. And maybe God's plan for the church 30, 40 years from now is for the church to gather in a different setting and for God to do a new work. And I've got to tell you, as the heart of a pastor, that at first that thought kind of grieves me. It kind of is like, oh, that would be sad. And I, I give some thought and some prayer, even though I'm only in my 30s, to think about where the church will be when I'm in my 60s, Lord willing, and how to leave it for the next generation. And then it hit me, that may not even be God's plan. That may not even be his intent. That may not even be what he's doing in 30 or 40 years from now. But here I'm fighting so hard to make sure that this box is prepared for the next generation. See how it's so easy to start looking to a box instead of looking to the Lord? We're thankful for this, but this is just a building. We're the church, and God's going to do his work through his church wherever he chooses for the church to, to be gathered. And we've got to be really, really careful to stop and think, okay, God, if, if I'm just going through ritual without relationship, it's going to result in death. It's going to result in the glory of God departing. The, the presence of God's going to start to depart from a marriage when there's no relationship with Christ. Christ is the vine, we're the branches, and as we connect to Christ, we, we bear fruit. The presence of God, the glory of God, is just gonna slowly start to dim out of a home when mom and dad are not walking with Christ. You know, single folks and whatever home you live in, apartment that you live in, you stop walking with the Lord, things are gonna start to dim. God's not gonna leave you or forsake you, but God's presence isn't gonna be there in the same way. It's just become ritual. It's just become what we do. Let's get out the box. Let's have Wednesday night Bible study. Let's have Saturday night Bible study. Oh, it's such a good thing. God's word and, and worship. But somehow it's just become ritual with no relationship and it leads to death. And we see that for the children of Israel. 30,000 foot soldiers. In verse 11, also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. God's word was fulfilled. We saw prior in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that God predicted his judgment upon Hophni and Phinehas that they would die. One common commentator, common potato, <laughs> said this. They died apparently as they lived in the very act of dishonoring God. It was dishonoring to God to bring out the Ark of the Covenant in this way, to make the Ark of the Covenant an idol, and they died the way that they lived. They made the Ark of a Covenant an idol, and now their idol has been captured. Haven't you found God to do that in your life? You make something an idol, even a good thing, and God will remove that idol so that we have him in the proper place. God's not captured, though, as we'll see. God's going to continue working. I hope you read ahead to chapter 5. It's one of the most colorful chapters in all of the Bible. God's going to continue to work even though the Ark of the Covenant was captured. 
I found this really interesting. It's a little bit of a side note, but archaeology backs up scripture in a powerful way. In, in the late 1970s, a five-line inscription was found on a grain silo in the ruins of I Bet Sertef. When deciphered, it was found to contain a Philistine account of this battle, the capture of the ark, even specifically mentioning the priest Hophni. Did you catch that? We have found archaeological evidence of this very battle, the ark being taken and specifically of the priest Hophni. The scriptures really are unique and archaeology backs that up. Hophni and Phinehas have died and the news now is going to travel back to Eli. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of the Lord. And when the man came into the city and told it, all of the city cried out. Eli is just waiting. What's happening? And his heart is trembling over the Ark of the Covenant, over the fact that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken into battle. Please don't misunderstand Eli. He made some bad choices, some sinful choices. He didn't hold his sons accountable for which God brought judgment upon him. But I believe that Eli loved the Lord. He's grieved here. He's trembling over the fact of how the Ark of the Covenant is being used. He pointed Samuel to hear God's voice. He was a good mentor to Samuel. He wasn't this man that didn't love the Lord. He was this man that made some sinful choices and not holding his son accountable. And we see his heart coming out here in verse 13. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he couldn't see. Probably cataracts in the way that it's described. His eyes just grew dim. We don't know, but he's at the place where he couldn't see. If he could see, he would know by the appearance of the man coming from verse 12 that it wasn't good news, that his clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. But he does hear, and he hears this tumult, and I'm sure he's getting a good idea of what has taken place. In verse 16, then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Have you ever received news like this? A loved one, a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, a best friend, they died. Bam. Both of your sons have died and they've captured the Ark of the Covenant. Have you ever gotten devastating spiritual news before in some way, shape, or form? Maybe it's been seeing some of these Christians get murdered in the Middle East by ISIS. If you're really paying attention, like, wow, 14 people, believers, just got their heads cut off 
because they're believers in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's heavy. Oh, man, that brother, that sister in Christ that I love so much and they love the Lord so much, they've just fallen away from the Lord. They've just gotten themselves into a net of sin. Oh, man, it's heartbreaking. Remember the, the shooting at New Life Church, if you've been in this community for a while? Oh, man, that's heavy. I hope they're okay. They're still looking for possibly another shooter when that, that came out. And then to get to know that story better and the young man that did the shooting and then killed himself grew up in a really strong Christian family. His really committed parents to the Lord. Oh, that's heavy. Could you imagine being that mom, that dad, that you did everything you could to raise your son in the ways of the Lord and, and he ended up going into a church and killing Christians and getting killed? And you're like, oh, that's everything that Eli was experiencing and more in this moment. My sons are dead. My unwillingness to hold them accountable ultimately resulted in their death by the hand of God. The Ark of the Covenant, it's gone. It's been captured by the Philistines. Verse 18, then it happened when he made mention of the Ark of God that Eli fell off of the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. Even more than dying from a broken neck, he died of a broken heart. He was so struck by the grief, he fell backwards, breaking his neck, and he passed away. God gave the overall of the judgment for Eli, but he saved the specifics. He saved in the, the exact details of how he was going to do it, and now we find the household of Eli is wiped out in one day. The Ark of the Covenant is captured, it, it's seized. This is not the way that you want to go out. Church, this is not the way that you want to finish your race with Jesus Christ. Contrast this with the Apostle Paul. Paul ends his life saying, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I'm being obedient un un unto the Lord. You think of Jesus hanging upon the cross, dying in, in faithfulness. That's, that's the way you want to go out. You want to go out by God's grace, with God's glory being bestowed upon your family, or God's presence being bestowed upon your kids and your grandkids, and if you're single, your immediate family and your friends, wouldn't that be wonderful? No matter when the timing is, that would be the best way to go out, agreed? Where God's presence could be felt, God's approval could be, could be felt, not going out in this way and, and in, in this manner. In verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she had heard the news that the Ark of the Covenant was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. My heart really goes out to Phineas's wife. One, because she's had a miserable husband. Her husband's sleeping around with everybody at the tabernacle and then coming home and having a relationship with her too. And she's pregnant. All of this is going on. She's full term. 
she gets this news that the ark is gone, her husband's dead, her brother-in-law's dead, her father-in-law's dead, and the grief hits her, and she goes into labor, and she's going to have her son. The birth is induced by pain, in verse 20. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, do not fear, for you have born a son, but she didn't answer nor regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel from the ark of God has been captured. Look at the end of verse 20. It says, do not fear for you have born a son, but she didn't answer nor did she regard it. She didn't have that normal, overwhelming feeling of joy that a boy's been born into the world, a girl's been born into the world, here's your healthy baby. And can we blame her? I mean, honestly, come on, can we blame her for having this, this response? No way. I mean, she's at such a, a terrible point in her life, but doesn't your heart go out for this child? that's born, that no one's regarding. It's not the child's fault. The child didn't choose any of this. The child was born into this circumstance. And I've got to tell you, I don't know the numbers, but there's thousands, if not millions, of little babies that are going to be born this year in situations like this. But they're going to come into the world, and because there's so much pain that's surrounding the circumstances of their birth, no one regards that child. And when a child is born, it's such a magical, mystical, powerful God's hand in that moment. And for a child to be touched, to be loved, to be brought up close to the heart of the mom, to the chest of the father... Those are some of the most cherished moments of my life, of being there when my four kids, kids were born. And in this, I see an opportunity for adoption. God's heart's for adoption. It's who he is. He adopted us as his sons and his daughters. We were this child that nobody regarded spiritually. We're lost. And God said, I, I, I love you. I want you to be my boy. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my girl. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you into my own. You're going to be a joint heir with Christ. And it's in the heart of the gospel for the church to care for widows and orphans. Amen? And adoption is not for everybody, meaning that God's not calling everybody to adopt, but God is calling every Christian to have a heart for the orphan. And there's also orphan-like kids that have parents in our culture, and our society. Just look for them. Look for them in the grocery store. Look for them in the halls of our church. Look for them in the schools. Look for them in the park. You can see the pain in their eyes. They're not regarded. They're not loved. They're not cared for. Some of them don't have parents. Some of them do have parents, but they're left to the side. And you look those kids in the eyes and you say, oh, it's good to see you. What's your name? How are you doing? Young man, you're doing a great job. Little girl, that's a beautiful dress. You're such a good helper for your mom. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, someone's paying attention to me. 
someone loves me. Take a little bit of extra time. This may mean God calling you to adopt. This may mean God calling you to support adoption financially. This may mean God just wearing, raising your awareness to pay attention to these children that are the castaways of society, the leftovers of society. But I'm convinced if we could follow Jesus around in his earthly ministry, he'd have been finding those kids every day. They were top on his list. He's looking for them. Oh, there's one right there. He's not loved. There's one right there. He's got no mom or dad. I'm going to play catch with him right now. You know, and they hear the disciples going, Jesus, you got more important stuff to do. This kid's not very important. Jesus is like, no, he's important. I, I find a lot in God's heart uh, for kids that are born in this type of, of situation. In verse 21 and 22, this child gets the worst name on the planet. Can we agree on that? Ichabod, what does it mean? The glory has departed. The word Chabod, C-H-A-B-O-D, means weight and glory. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, Kabod, God's presence, was there. Ichabod means the lack of God, God's presence. Going on further in, in Exodus, in Exodus 33, we see that God appeared to Moses in a special way. And once again, we see God's glory. It's glory that's in, in English, in Hebrew, it's Kabod. It's, it's God's presence. In Exodus 40, we see the tabernacle is, is filled with God's glory, with, with his presence. And now the name of this child expresses the departure of God's presence, the departure of God's glory. He hasn't left Israel. He hasn't forsaken Israel. But his presence is not abiding with them in the same way. Thankfully, as we continue to read the scriptures, is God returns his glory to the children of Israel when they rebuild the temple, or when they build the temple, excuse me, for the first time. Solomon prays, and the glory of God, the kabod of, of God, comes in that place once again. And even in this rebellion in the children of Israel, in this dark period, God doesn't, doesn't forsake them, but he removes his fellowship with them to get their attention. And thankfully, God has that same commitment of unconditional love for us as well. But do you want to be in that place? I don't want to be in that place. That's a dark place. This is a dark time in, in Israel's history. We don't want the glory of God to depart. We don't want the glory of God where God's still with us. He won't leave us or forsake us. But he's not fellowshipping with us in the way that he would like based on our sin. So what would God have you to do with this chapter? What is it that he's speaking to your heart and to your life? In 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, it says that some have the form of godliness, but they deny its power. That's this chapter. They've got the form of godliness. They've got the Ark of the Covenant, but they don't have obedience and relationship with a living God, so they have no power. There's no victory. There's only defeat. And if it's possible for the children of Israel, it's possible for us as well. And what is it that God is, is stirring in your heart as you read through, through this chapter and respond to it? Say, okay, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I get it. I'm going for it. I want to be in relationship with you. God, forgive me. I've been concerned with deliverance. And for you to do this and get me out of this situation, I've been complaining about the Philistine. And all along, you've been wanting relationship. 
God, I've been looking to a box. In fact, I, I come to this big box every week on Austin Bluffs and Academy, and I, in some way, I'm looking to the building. I'm, I'm looking to the church leadership. No, don't look to this box. Don't look to this church leadership. You look to a living God. I, I've been approaching my finances this way, and I've got it all wrapped up in a box, but I've forgotten to trust the Lord. I've forgotten to look to a living God. I've got family wrapped up. I'm ready to write my book and put it out there on my blog. And yep, I've got it all put together in a tight knit package. And I can train people. And this is, oh Lord, I've been, I've been looking to my box. I haven't been looking to you. And eventually, over time, that's going to lead to death. Because we're not connected to the vine. We're not connected to the Lord. God's heart is he was ready, he is more than ready to forgive Israel if they would have turned to God at this point. How do we know that? Because we studied the book of Judges. It wasn't the first time they were in this kind of spiritual condition. They'd cry out to the Lord, God would raise up a judge. And he's ready tonight to do a work in our life if we'll respond as well and say, God, I want to be concerned with relationship with you. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we don't want to put you in a box. We don't want to look to a box. We don't want to idolize a box. We want to be in relationship with you. And would you forgive us for times in our lives where we treat you more like a good luck charm, that we want deliverance and power, but we're not concerned with relationship and obedience. And we do ask for your presence in our lives and your presence in this church. Would you bring fruit through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer tonight, we'd love to pray with you. This is a ministry time. We say this every week, but man, we would love to take some time to really lift you up in prayer tonight. If you need to receive Christ as your Savior, meaning to put your trust in him for salvation, you've never made that decision. You've never gotten to that place of saying, I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus died for me and rose again. Jesus, would you save me? Would you be the Lord of of my life? Tonight, as we're in worship, come down and Find someone on the ministry team and let them know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. Last week at the 11 o'clock service, I'm standing right over here. A young man, he's 16 years old. He walks down this aisle. He says, you know what? I'm really lost. I feel really empty. I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. He said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Are you here with someone? Do you have some friends come? Are you here with your family? He says, no, I live in the neighborhood. I've never been to church before, and I decided to walk. I just have seen the church. I decided to get up Sunday morning, and I I came here. I'm ready to give my heart and life to Christ. Like, wow, that's God, you know? That's the Lord, just doing a work in his life. And I know that God's doing a work in your life as well. You know whether you've given your heart and life to Christ. This may be the first time in church or maybe the 50th time in church, but you've never said yes to Jesus. He loves you. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to restore you. If you're ready to turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ. But guess what? Believers, he knows us as well. He knows what you're thinking right now. He wants to meet you. He wants to meet you in this last song. And if you need prayer, Come and receive prayer. Allow God to do a work in your life. Let's worship together.